is from the book of Esther, from chapter 7. <coughs> you can find it up here on the screen, or uh, if you wish to follow along in a Bible, there should be a Bible on the back of the pew in front of you, or if you have it on a phone or a tablet or wherever else, you can follow along there as well. I'll be reading from the New International Version. So, um, we're kind of in the middle of the story here in Esther, so uh, I'll give us a little bit of context where we're at. There's four characters in the book of Esther that you have to know. The first one is Esther, uh, and she becomes a queen of Persia, but she is a Jew. And Esther has a cousin who is quite a bit older than her and kind of raised her after her parents died. His name is Mordecai. And you have the king, and you have the king's right-hand man whose name is Haman. And Haman and Mordecai uh, hate each other, basically. Uh, and Haman hates Mordecai so bad, he doesn't just want to kill Mordecai, he decides he wants to kill all of the Jews. And so he talks with the king and he makes it a law that on a certain day coming up and not too far from where we are, then all of the Jews in the empire are going to be killed. And so Esther is going to make a plea to the king to have that rule changed. Now, Haman and the king both don't know that Esther is a Jew. It's an important detail. So Esther uh, knows that the king and Haman, they love partying, they love drinking, so she decides to throw a banquet for them. At the first banquet, she can't quite work up the courage to make a request, so she decides, tomorrow I'm going to throw another banquet. We'll have a second banquet, and I'll try to work up the courage for my request at the second banquet. So that's where we are now. They're about to have the second banquet, and Esther is going to make her request to the king. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet. And as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king asked, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half of my kingdom, it will be granted. And Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. And King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, who is he? And where is he, the man who has dared to do such a thing? Esther said, an adversary and enemy, this vile Haman. And Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage, left his wine, and went out into the palace garden. 
But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, Okay. Uh, let's go back to the beginning of verse 7. The, the king got up in his rage, left his wine, and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. And just as the king was returning from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she's with me in the house? And as soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, a pole reaching to a height of 50 cubits stands by Haman's house. He had set it up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole. He had set up for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, as a few people have actually said this morning, today is my daughter's first birthday. Her name is Esther. And we've been able to have a few parties for her already, celebrating her first birthday. And I thought, what better way to celebrate our Esther than by preaching on the biblical Esther? For two weeks in a row, actually. Last week, I was doing pulpit supply uh, in Wyoming, where I grew up at the CRC there. Um, so I got to preach to cousins and aunts and uncles, uh, my only grandparent who's still living, Grandma DeBoer. My siblings came, my parents were there, so we had a little family reunion at the church. But I, I preached essentially this same sermon over there last week, so I got to do a, a little bit of a trial run before doing it here where I get paid. Well, I got paid over there too, but you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> so I love the story of Esther. If you feel like uh, you're struggling with, with reading the Bible, the Bible feels a bit boring, or if someone you know is saying reading the Bible is boring, tell them to read Esther. You could read it front to back in one sitting. It wouldn't take you that long. It's a very exciting story. It's very, very well written. It's a great read. It's a powerful story about deliverance and reversal. Keep those two words in mind. And there's only one problem with the story. Maybe you know. God is never mentioned in the story. Not one time in the book of Esther is God referenced, his name is never said, 
And that feels weird for the Bible, which is a book about God. So we have to ask, why is this book in the Bible if, if God is not in it? I mean, Martin Luther, like Mr. Reformed himself, said that he thought that Esther should be taken out of the Bible for this very reason. Well, just because God isn't in it doesn't mean that God isn't in it. You, you know what I mean? He's not explicitly mentioned, but it is implied that he's there. And one of the ways that biblical authors do this, that they imply that God is there, is through something called typology. This is where I get the title for this morning's sermon, Esther, a Type of Christ. So what typology, this, this study is, is Esther being a type of Christ means that she points to Christ. And I also want to talk a little bit about how Haman is a type of Satan, and even how King Xerxes, in some ways, is a type of the Father, God. So here's a key to understanding typology. Esther isn't perfect. But Jesus is perfect. He lived a perfect life. He died a perfect death, and he continues on in resurrected perfection today, seated at the Father's right hand. So although she points to Christ, who is perfect, Esther isn't perfect. Far from it. Let me show you why I think that. Let's talk a little bit about Israelite history. So the kingdom of Israel was split into two because of King Solomon's unfaithfulness. Solomon is David's son who took the throne after him. And so now you have two kingdoms. You have Israel and you have Judah. And the kingdom of Judah, where uh, Jerusalem is, where the temple is, that remained in the line of David. The kings were all in the line of David. But with the kingdom of Israel, it jumped around a little bit. But ultimately, both kingdoms were unfaithful to God. And so God raised up enemies to defeat them and to carry them away from the promised land. And this is a big deal because God's whole promise, his whole covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob was about descendants who would inherit the land. It's about the land. And now because of their unfaithfulness and their disobedience, they're being carried away from the land. This first happened to the kingdom of Israel in 720 BC. And the kingdom of Israel is completely wiped out and destroyed so that there's nothing left of them. They're destroyed by the Assyrians. And later on in 586, a similar thing happens to Judah. But a small remnant of them remains. And they're carried off into exile under Babylon. And now in the time of Esther, they're under new rule, under the Persian Empire. However, one 
Persian king named Cyrus. He lived during the time of Daniel. He made a law that the Jews could go back to Jerusalem. They could rebuild the city, they could rebuild the temple. And you can read about that uh, in the books that come just before Esther. It's in Ezra and Nehemiah tells that story. It kind of happened at the same time. But the problem is not all of the Jews returned to Jerusalem. In fact, most of them decided to stay in exile. Think back when the Jews were, were delivered from Egypt, just like their ancestors centuries and centuries before, they, they thought that being slaves in a foreign country wasn't so bad. And they didn't really care about the promised land, this covenant land that God had for them. So when given the option, a few faithful returned to Jerusalem, but the majority, the unfaithful, stayed behind and chose to remain in exile. And among these unfaithful, who stayed in exile, Esther and Mordecai. It's not a good look for our heroes. At this point, at least, not exactly the role model type. And additionally, the, the first few chapters of the book of Esther outline how Mordecai and Esther work together to hide Esther's nationality and hide her religion in order to get Esther a shot at becoming the next queen because Xerxes had gotten rid of his old one. He didn't like her anymore. Esther isn't even her real name. Did you know that? Her Jewish name is Hadassah. It tells us that in chapter 2. They change it to Esther which is a Persian name because it's going to give her a better shot at becoming the queen. And when word is going around that the king is looking for beautiful young virgins who might be the next queen of Persia, Mordecai gets an idea. So he puts his young cousin Hadassah forward. He says, your name is Esther now. And don't let anyone know you're a Jew. To verse 10, Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. And the plan works. Esther does become queen. And it works so well that up until our passage here in chapter 7, Haman has no idea that the queen is Jewish. The king himself has no idea that his new queen is Jewish. Esther has abandoned her people. And she has abandoned her God in her quest for, for power and for a comfortable life. An example of this comfortable life that Esther was living she got to spend an entire year in a spa preparing to meet the king. I think a year in a spa sounds pretty nice. 
And when Mordecai first breaks the news to her that Haman has a plot to destroy all the Jews in the empire, Esther is originally unwilling to help. She doesn't want to risk her position and her comfortable, easy life, her safe life, for the sake of her people. I don't want to give all of this up. For the first half of the book, Esther is certainly no role model. I fear that sometimes we think she is. Sometimes we do this with characters in the Bible. Sometimes we do this with pastors. We make them out to be more than they are, which is sinful and selfish people who make mistakes. Now Esther learns from her mistakes. When she's originally unwilling to help the Jews, Mordecai rebukes her and gives her a wake-up call. We can go to the next slide, it's got the text here. 4 verse 14, Mordecai is talking to Esther. He says, if you remain silent at this time, Relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. If you don't do anything, you and your father's house will perish. It takes these difficult words from Mordecai for Esther to, to snap out of it and get her priorities in check. Start thinking about what really matters. So does making mistakes and needing correction make you unusable by God? No. It just makes you human. So Esther points to Christ. Esther is a type of Christ, but she is not Christ. And the same goes for us. Whether you're a pastor, or whether you're an elder, or a deacon, or whether you're a young adult, or a teen in youth group, we too, we are all called to point others to Christ. Even though we don't have it all together. Even though we aren't perfect. And God doesn't expect us to be perfect either. We'll go to the next slide one more time, another verse. Psalm 103. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed, he remembers that we are dust. Fathers have compassion on their children when they make mistakes because that's normal for them to do. They make mistakes. They're just kids. They're human. We all make mistakes. We are all human. We are dust. We need the Father's compassion. We all need deliverance. 
As I was uh, doing my research for this sermon, then I came across a dissertation, which is a master's or a doctorate paper. It was written just a few years ago. It was titled, Evidence for a Typology of Christ in the Book of Esther. I found that, and I thought, jackpot. <laughs> so I thought I should give credit where credit is due, that a large portion of my uh, information from here on out comes from that paper, at BYU 2020. So for starters, as we think about typology and how it's used in the Bible, and we have to think, well, what's the Bible really about? It's a library, it's a collection of books, but it has a single overarching theme, and that's deliverance. The people are in trouble, they're headed down a path towards doom, and then God delivers them. He rescues them. I think it's easy to see how Esther is also about deliverance. The story reveals deliverance through reversal. And the deliverance that we receive through Jesus Christ, through faith in Jesus, it also comes through reversal. The story of Esther is about how Haman wants to kill all of the Jews, and so Esther is going to have to plead the case for the Jews. Queen Esther is going to have to walk into the king's inner court. And if you walk into the king's inner court without being summoned, you risk being killed on the spot, unless the king decides to spare you. So nobody dares ever do this. Don't disturb the king. He's in his inner court. The doors are closed. But Esther does this. Chapter 5, she swings the doors open and walks in, and the king spares her. She risks her life for the sake of her people. Similar to Jesus on the cross, he did more than risk his life, he gave it up. That's just the beginning. Esther throws two banquets, remember, before bringing her request to the king. So 7 verse 2 begins, on the second day, it's the second banquet. Let's compare this with Christ's second coming. On this second day, this second banquet that Esther is throwing, it's also judgment day for Haman. And on the day, that second day, when Christ comes again and he throws a beautiful banquet, it will be judgment day for our adversary and enemy, Satan, the devil. And he will be defeated on that day. <coughs> In verse 3, Esther's plea is for her life and for the life of her people. To this very day, Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father pleading our case so that the Father might deliver us. But what do we need deliverance from? In verse 4, Esther goes on, For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had merely been sold as slaves, I would have kept quiet. 
Paul writes in Romans 6 that we are slaves to sin, that the wages of sin is death. If you know your Bible very well, you'll know that in her prayer for confession, then Jen referenced Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, Paul takes it even further. He says we are now dead in our transgressions and sins. Right now, we are destroyed, killed, annihilated. That's our current state. Our case for ourselves is hopeless without Christ pleading for us. In Christ alone, our hope is found. And as Esther accuses and condemns the wicked, the vile Haman, so Jesus accuses and condemns the wicked, the vile Satan. And Jesus has already defeated sin and death on the cross. The Heidelberg Catechism tells us we are now set free from the tyranny of the devil. Now for a bit of Hebrew. There's a very strange and an interesting word choice in verse 8. It says, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. And the original Hebrew word for couch is mitah, which does mean couch or bed. It means a resting place. But it's implied that it is a final resting place. It's a deathbed, if you will. So everyone say, metah. Deathbed. As you look around the rest of the Old Testament for where this word is used, it's almost always used in a situation where somebody dies. Almost exclusively. Either they're sick and they're laying in bed, we know they're going to die, or it's because they're sleeping and someone is going to kill them in their sleep. Mitah is first used in Esther in 1 verse 6. Splendor of the king's palace is being described. There are tapestries and decorations and marble floors, and there are couches or deathbeds made of gold and silver. At first, that feels like a really, really weird word choice. Why on earth would a, would a king, this king empire superpower, have deathbeds made of gold and silver in his palace? Why use that word? But now we see that it's used as foreshadowing for what happens to Haman in chapter 7, verse 8. Because a different Hebrew word could have been used to describe the bed or the couch that Esther is uh, reclining on, but this is a symbolic word choice to show that Esther and her people, the Jews, were on their deathbed. They're in big trouble. Doom is coming. And now... Haman has fallen onto the deathbed where Esther is reclining. So no longer is Mordecai, Haman's enemy, the Jew, going to be impaled. No longer are the Jews the ones who are going to be wiped out. 
Instead, Haman is impaled. And it's the enemies of the Jews who are wiped out in Esther chapter 9. Perhaps you've heard it before that Haman was hung on a gallows. This is what some Bible translations say, typically older ones. The wording of the NIV paints a very accurate picture for us. That they impaled Haman on a pole. Just think for a minute, like a receipt on a receipt spike. That's what Haman wanted to do to Mordecai. But what instead ended up happening to him? Reversal. As Haman falls onto the deathbed, Mittah, where Esther is reclining, he switches places with Esther. Let's look at 7 verse 8 again, this, uh, the second half of this verse. As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. I think most of us probably know what that's a reference to. They're covering Haman's face because they're going to execute him. The king doesn't even have to give the word. People know. As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Swift judgment has fallen on Haman. His face is covered and he's let off to be executed. But just as the pole that Haman had set up for Mordecai was used to defeat him, so another pole, the cross, was the very thing that Jesus used to defeat Satan. I mean, this is the darkest day in the history of the universe. The day that we brutally beat and tortured and killed God himself is also the day of deliverance. This is the greatest reversal of all. That somehow it's through Christ's death that we get eternal life? First Peter 5, verse 8, gives us a warning. Peter writes, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. We must be aware that this battle with our adversary and enemy, our foe, it rages on today. Satan is prowling around today, looking for someone to devour. But here's the thing. We have nothing to fear. You don't have to be afraid because he is on his deathbed Judgment for God's enemies will come swiftly. And it is judgment that everyone here deserves. I deserve it. You deserve it. Watching online, you deserve it. You deserve judgment. 
We're all human. We all make mistakes. We are just dust. But if you put your faith in Jesus, then you will receive deliverance through that greatest reversal of all. Amen. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for the deliverance that you have for us. It's so easy. All we have to do is accept it. And it never runs out. No matter what we've done, you forgive, and you deliver, and you rescue. And Jesus, we thank you that your death on that pole on the cross was the reversal that made it possible. And Holy Spirit, we thank you for working in our hearts that you give us faith to receive your mercy. Triune God, you alone are worthy to be praised. And we thank you for stories like Esther that point us to you despite the flawed characters. Help us also to, to point others to you despite our flaws, no matter what their flaws. We worship you and we know you hear us when we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.